This is a Federal News Network podcast. The Biden administration is facing numerous lawsuits, including at least three separate suits filed by Republican state attorneys general challenging the legality of its vaccine mandate for federal contractors. It's still unclear whether courts will intervene before the December 8th vaccination deadline, but whether they do or not, contractors have some big concerns of their own about how the mandate is supposed to work in practice. Stephanie Castro is Executive Vice President for Policy at the Professional Services Council, and she joins us now to talk about some of the issues vendors are flagging for federal policymakers. And Stephanie, I think the place to start is to really make clear what PSC's position on this, given that there is so much litigation going on at the moment uh, from states in particular who are just outright opposed to a vaccine mandate. That's, That's really not PSC's position at this point. You're mainly just asking for a delay. Is that about right? That's true, Jared, and thanks for making that distinction. We at the Professional Services Council have more than 400 members, um, and these member companies range in position on, you know, some are very pro-vaccine mandate. They've already instituted them it within their, their own companies, and others are um, really concerned about the timeline and the um, specificity of who needs to be vaccinated. And so as a, as a trade association, we do represent um, the broad swath of our companies. I would say that as, a, as an organization, PSC, appreciates what the government is trying to do in terms of, of a vaccine mandate, but it's got to be as p- part of a broader approach to stopping the spread of COVID, and that includes testing, treatment options, um, exemptions for medical disability and for religious reasons, and reasonable accommodations. And so it's part of a larger picture that we, we often have to remind people that they don't need to lose sight of. It's not just about the vaccine. To stick with the vaccine mandate itself for a minute, though, talk about some of the concerns that you have and that you're talking about with your members around timing, because as it stands now, everybody really does need to be fully vaccinated by December 8th. What are some of the challenges that that's creating um, for companies in terms of the timeline? One of the interesting pieces or talking points that we've heard out of the White House is that lots of commercial entities, and they'll they'll quote um, or they'll cite airlines and, and other large companies that have had vaccine mandates and they and they cite the success rate. And we'd like to remind folks that it's taken them nine months to get to those high vaccination rates, high vaccination of 95 or 97, maybe even 99% of their workforce. It took them nine months from the beginning of vaccine availability to get to those rates. And what the government is asking federal contractors to do is get there in nine weeks. And that is a challenge. December 8th is very, very close. If you do the backwards math, if you have to be fully vaccinated, and that means two weeks after your last dose of a vaccine by December 8th, you really need to get that first dose this week. That is that is what they're asking people to do is to get vaccinated for a two-dose vaccine this week, wait a few weeks, get their second dose, wait two weeks for full efficacy. That really isn't possible in many places um, in terms of dealing with contractor employees who don't want to get vaccinated. You need to have a a more deliberate, thoughtful approach to getting folks vaccinated or to deal with medical disability or religious exemptions for that. I I guess my sort of devil's advocate-y pushback on that a little bit would be, yeah, it's a tight timeline now, but going all the way back to, I guess it was July when the masking slash vaccine policies first went into place, the administration even then was pretty clear that this is only step one and we're going to go further. And considering the the administration's prior messaging on the importance of vaccination, it it seems to me a vaccine mandate for contractors is kind of unsurprising. So 
I guess putting that in the form of a question, are there companies that were more proactive and are further along and better postured to do this at this point? And does that vary by size? You're absolutely right, Jared, in that the president had some indications that he would like to see the vaccination rates across the board for all Americans to be higher um, than it was certainly in July. And we're getting there. Some companies that are federal contractors have instituted their own vaccine mandates, but it wasn't going to be a requirement until the president released, you know, statements, executive orders and the like in early September. That was September 9th. And we weren't getting guidance until September 24th, which was when the Safer Federal Workforce Task Force was, was set to come out with their guidance. It's not flowing down into contract clauses until just the last couple of weeks. And so for that, if you're a contractor, you're not going to do something necessarily that's not required, particularly something that is potentially as divisive as vaccination. Uh, There are lots of uh, covered contractor employees who might have legitimate reasons under the American with Disabilities Act, under Civil Rights Act to have exemptions. But companies weren't necessarily going down that path until it was required for them to do so. So I take your point that, you know, some companies took that indication in midsummer that they should have a vaccine mandate, but other companies were waiting to see how far it would go. Um, And now we are in that crunch time. There are a lot of issues that are raised in in some of these state lawsuits about the vaccine mandates pertaining to contractors. We can't get into all the issues here, but some of them I suspect that PSC might actually agree with. One of them being one of the lawsuits that was filed on Friday points out that it's kind of unprecedented to change government-wide procurement policy through just a series of class deviations, and that's probably not the way you ought to go go about this. Are are there precedents that are going to come out of these lawsuits that are going to be important for the broader procurement landscape over time? For that question, there there are at least three state lawsuits that are finding their way into U.S. district courts around the country. And last I saw, there were nearly 20 states that are party to those lawsuits. They cite things like um, the the way the procurement procedure usually runs is that a new contract clause or class deviation would go out for comment, um, minimum, you know, 30 days, likely 60 days or longer for the public to provide feedback. I think what the White House has done is tried to... um, not necessarily circumvent that process. We have gotten information from the White House that um, they do plan on on opening it up for public comment, but that is not impacting the current contract clauses that are being incorporated both in new contracts and through bilateral modification through into existing contracts. This is part of what is driving this lawsuit you know, we've been talking to folks in the Office of Management and Budget who say, obviously, federal law does supersede state law. Uh, but these, you know, these court cases are being filed to talk about the process. It is unprecedented, and there are always going to be some growing pains with that. But the White House is adamant their goal is to increase vaccination rates across the board. For federal contractors, they can put it into contracts. For the broader public, we're still waiting on emergency temporary standards coming out of the Department of Labor to impact the rest of businesses throughout the country. And, and another issue that's raised in the litigation is that, you know, the substance of the, the class deviation is, is pretty thin. It really just points to the Safer Federal Workforce Task Force FAQ. And the point they raise is, guys, an FAQ on a website is, is really not a regulation as we typically understand regulations. Is, is that a problem for the contracting community as well? 
It is definitely a cause for concern. You know, I'm a, I'm a process wonk. Uh, I'm a policy wonk and a process wonk. And, and um, I go back to what is on the written paper, or in this case, <laughs> written paper that's electronically uploaded. I would say it is a cause for concern when you have a clause that refers back to a website that can change at any time. And when you're a contractor dealing with your government counterpart and talking about what are the requirements for that contracting officer from the government to say, well, just check out this website and see what's new and updated. That website was updated just this week with new frequently asked questions with guidance about what are, what are the recourses for reasonable accommodations? What should your processes look like for exemptions? You know, it is a moving target and that is a cause for concern. You know, again, contracts come down to what people sign up for and are legally obligated to. And when it refers back to a website that is ever changing, that can be a real cause for concern. And I know another thing that PSC is looking for here is indemnification in the courts. What exactly would that look like? And, and what what's sort of the legal minefield that companies are going to need to walk through here that would even raise that as a need? So for your listeners, indemnification really is critical for lots of uh, government contractors. When you have a, a federal requirement with which you've got to comply, uh, that is going to make you face lawsuits from your employees. And there are several junctures where an employee could choose to sue their employer. And that is the legality of requiring somebody to get a vaccine um, if they apply for a religious or a medical disability exemption and are denied. If the reasonable accommodations that they have uh, say they, that they do get an exemption, but the reasonable accommodations makes uh, working difficult, that is a problem. Um, and just generally speaking, our companies are going to be facing some lawsuits from employees who do not want to comply with this mandate. And um, the government should at least give due consideration to indemnifying those companies because they have to comply with federal contract law and what is in their contract. Um, and so their hands are tied, but they do face lawsuits that can put many of them, it's an existential crisis, they could put them out of business. One issue with the Office of Management and Budget or one comment that was made was you can always apply for a, an adjustment or a reimbursement, if you will, for lawsuits. But lawsuits can drag on for years. Um, and there's how do you how do you apply for reimbursement for a lawsuit if you're out of business? Um, and so it really is an existential question, particularly for some of the small and mid-sized companies that are facing potential lawsuits. And, and what would that look like in a practical sense? Instead of applying for some kind of equitable adjustment, the, would the government actually stand in for the company and, and mount a legal defense? Or how would it work in practice? In practice, it could be uh, such that cases are immediately dismissed and therefore not, not an issue, or it could be that the, the government can stand in. The government has limited authority to indemnify, um, and it really depends on what form that takes. The, it would be the government's choice, hopefully with feedback from industry about what it should look like. Stephanie Castro is Executive Vice President for Policy at the Professional Services Council. You can find this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. And during his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. 
Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the president and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual, actual uh, afloat commands. Uh, the first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, and then after I retired after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm, I'm currently retired and enjoying life. And um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style? And how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite con consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin and what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I. We'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it um, from C to the C-suite. Fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career, but really it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was, it was you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? 
you have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance in some cases and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions, uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And, and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy and um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes, when I was at Navy Federal, I would tell sea stories. Uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they gonna say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment and it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, and I might add that um, any proceeds from the book Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons in, in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. Um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect, thank you. Yeah, we, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally and, agree. And, and I can tell you from the US Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler. And to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast, we'll see you next time. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you're sending money to. 
Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.